This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we've passed the 3 million mark on the federal exchanges in terms of enrollment. Well, that is great, Mark. More than 3 million Americans have signed up for health insurance coverage on the exchange. And boy, did those numbers jump in January. The state exchanges have also seen some brisk activity during the first year, certainly in New York and California and Michigan and Connecticut as well. But, you know, there are some challenges in those marketplaces as well. Now, Massachusetts has brought in experts to fix that state's exchange. Of course, that's somewhat surprising considering that the Bay State really has had near universal coverage and a high-functioning exchange since 2006. Governor Deval Patrick says that he's determined to get to the bottom of the issues that have been plaguing the Massachusetts exchange from the beginning. You know, it's Oregon and Massachusetts and Maryland who've all had technical problems, and uh, all of their governors have said the same thing. They've moved a lot of these to paper, but they're still trying to work out the kinks in their systems. But across the country, we're seeing uh, other state exchanges that are doing a great work. Now, some of these states are actually mulling over the idea of joining the federal exchange, healthcare.gov, rather than trying to fix the myriad challenges that they've experienced in their state exchanges. So some continued issues as this rollout unfolds, but success stories too, including those 3 million people. But there's still one group that's so far eluded the marketplaces. It's only 20 percent of those who signed up so far uh, are from the Latino community. And Margaret, those numbers are well uh, below Mm -hmm. the targets they had. It's a problem that is being seen around the country as well. So more work needs to be done to reaching out to this community. And one other thing that is certain, Mark, is that the health care law is going to prove a lightning rod issue during the upcoming midterm elections. And as we've seen, politics and health care do not always make the best bedfellows. Well, we've got a great guest today, and that is former Congressman Johnny Porter, who's the chairman of Research America, an organization dedicated to fostering government funding of medical and scientific research. He's a leading crusader for increasing the funding to the National Institute of Health. He has a unique perspective on just how vitally important it is to sustain funding for scientific research in this country, something that certainly has come under fire in the current climate. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements about health policy spoken in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And if you have any comments, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'll get to our interview with Congressman John E. Porter in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The federal exchange has been running rather smoothly for several months now, but there's still one element that won't be fully functional for at least several months. The automated payment system for Obamacare is not expected to be fully operational for a while, the piece that allows the administration to verify how many newly signed customers are actually paying their monthly premiums and are hence truly enrolled. That was one of the major glitches discovered with healthcare.gov when it first went online. Meanwhile, the numbers of young invincibles and Latinos are lagging behind expectations for those signing up for health care. One group has shown up in big numbers, however, the 50 and 60-somethings who lost jobs with benefits during the Great Recession and couldn't find affordable coverage afterwards due to pre-existing conditions. 
Meanwhile, more folks are finding out conditions are not covered by plans that are being made available to them through the exchanges, especially in some states that didn't create their own exchanges, thus providing more options. Folks in Louisiana, for example, won't be covered for gastric bypass surgery, known to reduce the incidence of diabetes by promoting major weight loss for the morbidly obese. Louisiana has one of the highest obesity rates in the nation. Still, other plans are not covering folks who are suffering from HIV. And there's another trend related to the health care law. American physicians worried about changes in the health care market are streaming into salaried jobs with hospitals. Though the shift from private practice has been most pronounced in primary care, specialists are following. Last year, 64 percent of job offers filled through Merritt Hawkins, one of the nation's leading physician placement firms, involved hospital employment compared with only 11 percent in 2004. The firm anticipates a rise to 75 percent in the next two years. Docs are bracing for expected cuts to Medicare Advantage and the Medicare drug plan. Rates for 2015 being announced. The GOP warning some seniors will see their health costs rise. Can loneliness lead to an early death? The data suggest yes. Researchers from the University of Chicago say extreme long-term loneliness can lead to a 14% increased risk of early death. The study showed lonely folks had disrupted sleep patterns, increased blood pressure, and a negative impact on the immune system. The study also showed that promoting programs that connected lonely folks improved their outcome. And another study out of Salt Lake City bears this out as well. They looked at the effect of having a supportive partner and what it had on your heart health. CT scans of the participants' hearts showed those with mates deemed always supportive had far better circulatory systems. So if you want to improve your heart health and longevity, go find someone to snuggle up with. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with former Congressman Johnny Porter, winner of the 2014 Public Welfare Medal, the most prestigious award bestowed by the National Academy of Sciences. Congressman Porter served for 21 years in the U.S. House of Representatives and was founder and co-chair of the Congressional Human Rights Caucus. He also oversaw funding for all federal health spending, including increased funding for the National Institutes of Health. Congressman Porter is a member of the Institute of Medicine and is chairman of Research America, which is dedicated to making medical and scientific research a national priority. He is a recipient of numerous other awards, including the Albert Sabin Hero of Science Award from the Americans for Medical Progress. Congressman Porter, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Mark and Margaret, thank you very much. Uh, as a non-scientist, I'm very humbled by this high honor that NAS is bestowing on me. We should be very proud, and uh, it couldn't come to a better recipient. And I think we should put me in, into a time frame. I served, in, <laughs> I served in Congress from 1980 to 2001, so I've been retired from Congress about 13 years. Well, you've uh, you used conti- it well. You've continued to keep on ticking, and you know. Sir, what's happened with the bipartisan support uh, for NIH? And you really led the charge back in 1995 for NIH's largest increase in its its funding in its history. And sort of like to figure out wh- where we are today. And then also tell our listeners about the initiatives you've launched to expand the scope of the work of NIH. I'm a Republican, a moderate Republican. 
suddenly became the majority party in the House of Representatives. The first thing that uh, they did is to pass a budget that provided for cuts for NIH of 5% a year for five straight years, or a 25% cut for NIH. I thought in reference to NIH, which I now had suddenly become the chairman and overseeing its funding, I thought that was insane. And what I did is uh, set up an appointment with Speaker Gingrich and gathered together a group of scientists and business people and took them in to see the new speaker. And they spent 40 minutes telling him how this was really bad policy for our country. And at the end of the time, to his credit, he uh, said, I think we've made a mistake and I'm going to work to... uh, to reduce or reverse that mistake and uh, became uh, a supporter of science uh, research. Three years later, the economy began to pick up uh, the deficits that had appeared and and was of concern began to disappear, and we're beginning to see surpluses as far as the eye could see. That uh, led me to believe that we could then Uh, pursue the doubling of of, uh, medical research, and I put it at my highest priority as chairman of the subcommittee. We worked with our counterparts. My counterpart in the Senate uh, at that time was Senator Arlen Specter, who has since passed away, but I also worked with Tom Harkin, who is now the chairman of the subcommittee, but who is retiring, and with Connie Mack to get a a bipartisan and bicameral uh, priority made for doubling funding for NIH, and we were able to achieve that. Uh, It uh, completed the doubling in 2003 after I actually left Congress, but the die was cast, and something that I believe in very deeply. It's something that I think made a huge difference because it uh, took the base of funding, which was then $13.5 billion, and raised it to $27 billion. The difficulty today is that it isn't much higher than $27 billion, and if you look at the inflation rate in scientific research, we're actually uh, on a reverse course, especially with the sequester. Well, Congressman, obviously that work, you're bringing people together, uh, working with the speaker, being attuned with what was happening in the economy, had profound effects for research in this country. And I understand that you used uh, your initiative to increase the funding to also expand the scope of the work of NIH. And I think some noteworthy scientific breakthroughs were achieved as a result. Perhaps you could share a little bit of that with our listeners. Well, I was an appropriator, so I dealt with the money that we committed to this as a national priority and to encourage the placing of it at a higher national priority and uh, increasing funding. So I really can't say that I uh, had anything to do with the scope or the type of research that was done. In fact, I think that uh, those decisions uh, Congress has wisely, although there have been some slippage of late, but wisely uh, the politicians have left scientific decisions for the scientists. And that is exactly the way it ought to be And every time I hear somebody in the Congress saying that they want to tell science how to choose priorities, that, I think, is a huge mistake and should never be allowed. should leave science to set its own priorities. They know where the scientific opportunities are. They know what is possible uh, with the funds that they have. And uh, I've always encouraged Congress to keep its hands off of scientific decision-making. 
Well, that's great advice. But you've been very much focused in on the economic aspect and the impact that uh, uh, scientific and medical research uh, can have. And we've had NIH President uh, Dr. Francis Collins on the show talking about the project he oversaw to map the human genome, and which cost about $4 billion to accomplish, but he said it's leveraged over $140 billion in economic additional economic growth through new privately funded ventures based on the initial genome mapping. Uh, so what sort of impact does the scientific research have to our country's economic well-being? I was chairman when we provided the funding for the Human Genome Project to be completed, and uh, I think that uh, Francis is being a little bit conservative about the economic impact. He says it's 35 times uh, the amount invested. I think it's more like 70 times the mm. amount invested if you t think of all the spinoffs. Um, I believe, uh, Mark, that the, the that research science, innovation, technology, that is the economic destiny of our country. This is where we lead the world. This is where we can compete with the world, but we can't do so without healthy, sustained investments. And uh, as Francis will tell you, scientific opportunities have never been greater, and yet we're, we're ratcheting down our funding, putting science at a lower priority at a time when we should be doing just the opposite. Well, Congressman, uh, that is a very important point. And, you know, we believe in our organization that health care is a right uh, and not a privilege, which is uh, on the care delivery end of things more than the research end. But certainly over these years, we've watched as the numbers grew to 50 million uninsured Americans. And now, uh, at last, the Affordable Care Act is here to help us remedy that disparity. And the Affordable Care Act has its own uh, commitment to research in some ways and to making things better, certainly looking at patient-centered research, advocating for more uh, study of evidence-based practices that over time should yield better health. So from your uh, position as somebody so engaged in research, how do you think the Affordable Care Act is going to advance the cause of research and quality in health care? I think that the Affordable Care Act has within it the potential to transfer our health care system from a fee-for-service system that we know is not sustainable to a quality care system where, where providers are paid for quality care of our citizens. And it's already beginning to change that way. Uh, if, if people would uh, notice, uh, for example, the uh, Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, Kaiser Permanente, and others are bringing together the healthcare providers in one large group to serve their large population of patients, and that impels them to do so efficiently because they're being capitated. In other words, they're being paid so much money by the government to provide care for those kinds of people in their provider system. And that makes them very conscious of quality, and it makes them very conscious that they have to do so efficiently. So I think the, the Affordable Care Act, uh, it has a lot of other provisions that, that lead us in that direction, but it is actually beginning to help move that process of improving our health care system to one that is sustainable and one that is based on quality and one that looks at the patient and what we can do for the patient uh, in, in a way that uh, 
that I don't think most people understand. We're speaking today with former Congressman John E. Porter, winner of the 2014 Public Welfare Medal, the most prestigious award bestowed by the National Academy of Sciences. Congressman Porter served for 21 years in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he oversaw funding for all federal health spending, including increased funding for the National Institutes of Health. Congressman Porter is chairman of Research America, which is dedicated to making medical and scientific research a national priority. Congressman, let's talk about the work that you oversee at Research America. I think our listeners would be interested in hearing more about the mission and the goals of the organization and also the partnerships that are making uh, their work happen. And particularly in this 21st century of big data, multidisciplinary research protocols and real incredible advances in technology. Uh, Research America is the only organization that is devoted solely to putting research at a high national priority and providing strong federal support for research in our country. It's made up of uh, about uh, 380 corporations, universities, medical centers, research institutions, professional societies, all working together on that mission. You know, if we look at what is happening today as young people who are aspiring to careers in scientific research, looking at the funding going down instead of being sustained and, and put at a high priority, we're going to lose the leads that we have uh, in the world, and we're going to lose the ability to attract, as we have over the last uh, 50 years, scientists from all over the world who are enriching our science and enriching our society. That's going to go away because we have a lot of competition out there. It is it is uh, well-funded, and the United States, uh, this is where we lead the world. Why would we want to give that up? Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that this is a a serious problem for our country. Well, Congressman, I know that others are carrying the baton uh, into the next generation of leadership in this area of research. And in fact, your organization is preparing to honor a couple of members of Congress, I think, from both sides of the aisle. Congressman Frank Wolf and Shaka Fatah have both exhibited leadership in advancing support for important medical and scientific research. Can you tell us more about the work that they are being lauded for and why efforts like theirs gives you some hope for the future? Well, uh, Research America has been recognizing achievements in scientific advocacy and in Congress, a leadership in Congress for about 20-plus years with our uh, awards dinner. Chaka, who, these are good friends of mine, by the way, Chaka Fatah has uh, been on the Appropriations Committee for, uh, I think, nearly 20 years but his uh, his efforts most recently have been in mental health research and putting that at a higher priority. And we all know that that has a great bearing on a lot of other issues. And uh, I can remember a, uh, a hearing that we had. We used to uh, invite in the Nobel laureates and spend our subcommittee would spend an entire day with eight or nine Nobel laureates. And I can remember the question being asked, and it might have been me that asked it, where would you put money if you could put it only in one area of research? And every one of them said, we know a great deal about the body below the neck, but we don't know very much about the body above. We don't know much about the brain. And uh, he is uh, providing great leadership in that area. Now, Frank, uh, Frank is uh, retiring from the Congress, unfortunately, uh, but he's been uh, there for 34 years and has been a tremendous leader 
in respect to uh, research, uh, particularly for the physical sciences. Right now, he chairs the subcommittee that funds most of the physical science research, like the National Science Foundation and NOAA and NIST and others. Congress is very siloed. Uh, people have to understand that research is, is funded on a whole different number of different subcommittees. But through the years, Frank has been a tremendous leader to put appropriations for physical science research and for medical science research at a high priority. I have to say that Frank also has been a great leader in human rights. And uh, when I retired from Congress and gave up the post as co-chairman of the Human Rights Caucus, I asked Frank if he would take that position for me, and he has been uh, leading in ways that uh, really has made a difference for human rights. So we've got two great members of Congress to recognize. Well, Congressman Porter, uh, you are also a leader and mentor, and you've certainly accrued some well-deserved accolades in your life's work, and uh, not only from uh, your work in Congress and at the Institute of Medicine and Research America and the Foundation for uh, the National Institutes for Health, but you're also a mentor. And uh, what do you think about the most important contributions you've been able to make in the promotion of science and, and medical research? But what about that next generation? And you're going to recognize some of the uh, leaders who you've passed the baton on. What are you thinking about how people should move forward in this uh, arena of how are you mentoring others as well? Well, I think the big problem, uh, Mark and Margaret, is is that uh, we are losing the people who have provided leadership in science in the Congress for a long, long time. And the Congress has become a different institution now than it was when I served in it. When I served in it, we would sit down together and work out our differences and uh, address problems and, and do our best to get them solved. It's become a uh, rather inhospitable place to that kind of compromise and working together for the good of the country. One of my theories is that when I came to Congress, uh, mainly uh, all the uh, leaders of both parties and the chairman of many of the big subcommittees we're all veterans of World War II, and we're used to working together for the good of the country. Mm. That has been lost, and uh, people come now to seemingly to work for the good of their party, but uh, unwilling to give uh, to, to common to find common ground to uh, move the country forward. I, I think it's a situation that is going to be very difficult to solve the way the political system works today and all the money in it. And it's something that the American people are going to have to address and supporting those who support the things that they believe in. Well, Congressman, we've always relied on strong leaders to help get us on the right course. And we'd be remiss if we uh, didn't give a shout out to one of the founders of Research America, someone we're pleased to call a friend and colleague of ours here in Connecticut, and that's former Governor Lowell Weicker. And I know you share Oh, Weicker was the first president, I and I, I believe the first yep. chair he was. of Research America. He was, and, and another another great uh, and strong leader. But, you know, whenever we uh, might feel a tad discouraged about just about anything, we look to uh, the young people around us in our communities and our organization uh, who have such talent and such passion. And I think we're all committed to making sure that the educational system works for them to advance uh, their interest and their talent for science and research. And we wonder if you'd like to, uh, as we wrap up, share any thoughts about a vision for our education in the United States that helps promote those scientists of the future. Young people are going to inherit the future of this country. 
And they have to care about public service, uh, serving in ways that they can be champions of the things that they believe in. Lowell Weicker certainly was and and always uh, stood up uh, and, and said, this is what I believe in, and I don't care if anybody doesn't agree with me. Those are the kinds of people that ought to be serving in public office and not those that put their finger in the wind and say, mm-hmm. which way is the wind blowing? I'm going to go that way. We need leaders, and uh, we work uh, constantly to identify them for the future in Congress and to get them committed through Research America to leadership in research. So uh, this is where I believe we need to emphasize STEM education, where we need to put our resources where young people are encouraged to have a career in science, and where we need ultimately to have our society built upon evidence-based decision-making and getting away from the partisanship and posturing that passes for good governance today. It isn't good governance. We've been speaking today with former Congressman John E. Porter, medical and scientific research advocate and winner of the National Academy of Sciences' most prestigious award, the 2014 Public Service Award. You can learn more about the work by going to researchamerica.org. Congressman Porter, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations today. Well, thank you, Mark and Margaret. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Representative Chris Van Hollen recently claimed that the Affordable Care Act had significantly reduced the per capita cost of health care. The per capita cost is rising. Van Hollen's office told us he meant that the ACA has significantly reduced the growth in cost. That's different and a matter of some debate. Per capita health care costs have been rising slowly at just under 3% a year over the last four years. That's less than half the average annual growth in the previous eight years. Economists, including those at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, say the recession is the biggest reason for the slowdown in growth. CMS called the impact of the Affordable Care Act, quote, minimal. The White House Council of Economic Advisors says health care costs would be 0.5% higher per year if not for the health care law. In their view, and Van Hollen's, that's significant. That's a subjective call, of course, but how has the ACA affected the slowdown in cost growth? Well, the Council of Economic Advisors says the law trimmed payments to Medicare, which reduced the growth of spending, but also that reductions in Medicare spending have a spillover effect on overall health care spending. The CEO of the nonpartisan Kaiser Family Foundation also has said the law has had an indirect impact, but it's difficult to prove. He said it's likely the ACA has played a role in slowing cost growth because the health care market has historically responded to the threat of impending health reform. Voters should be aware that costs are rising, but at a historically moderate pace. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. 
Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Food labeling could be going one step further than simple calorie counts in the future. Public health researchers at the University of North Carolina have some pep in their step for another approach to getting consumers' attention when pondering those food and beverage choices. There's growing interest in a new approach to displaying calorie counts next to menu items. Instead, show the amount of exercise that would be required to burn off those calories consumed from drinking, say, a 20-ounce cola. They developed an icon symbolizing a person walking and how far that person would have to walk to erase the calories they were just about to consume. They conducted a randomized study to determine what, if any, effect the measure would have on consumer choices. And we showed them basically a full menu with all items. And so one group was randomized to no information except the food items. Another one was a menu of pretty much every item, exact same way, and it had the calories. And then a third option had calories plus minutes to walk with our little figure, and it had, you know, for example, 91 minutes. And then finally, a fourth menu that showed the same exact thing with the same exact figure with miles to walk, so it might say 5.1 miles. Dr. Anthony Vieira, professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Public Health, he said the study showed quite clearly that when consumers saw that consuming a food or drink item would require them to walk five miles to burn those calories off, as opposed to just seeing the calories, it had a direct impact on the choice. So if you looked at total calories ordered, when you were shown no label, the average calories ordered were 1,020. When you were shown calories only, which is a you know sort of the policy, the current policy, the average order was 927 calories, and when shown calories plus miles, the average order was 826 calories. So as you can see, there was a definite decrease in calories when you're shown calories plus miles. The results of the initial study were so conclusive, they are now scaling up their research to test it in restaurants. Restaurant food labeling, showing a consumer how much exercise will be required to burn off the calories consumed helping them comprehend the actual calorie value of the foods they choose, and maybe thus positively impacting their intention to consume fewer calories more wisely? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.